I want to talk on a subject that's really very important and really not talked about very much. I want to talk about the subject of sacrificial giving. A long, long time ago, there was a woman that Jesus describes or teaches his disciples about by her example. It was an unnamed widow who gave two mites. Now, we all know that story, but there's so much more surrounding it. And there's a whole lot by way of personal application when it comes to your giving and my giving today. And we want to notice some of those things. Some of those wonderful qualities and characteristics that this unnamed poor widow had. Our passage, by the way, will be taken in Mark chapter 12 and beginning in verse 41. Now, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how people put in money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he called the disciples to him and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Just a little background now as we look at this narrative. We're talking now about the last week in the life of Jesus. You know, I did a study back in 2018 on the last week in the life of Jesus, and I got to tell you, it was one of the most enjoyable studies I have ever done. Amazing things in the hand of God and the handiwork of God in everything that went on. But in the last week in the life of Jesus, the narrative that is before us, Sunday has now passed. And the Lord has already made his triumphal entry on the back of a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem. Monday has now passed too. And now, scholars tell us, when this happened, it was probably about Tuesday. And Tuesday is often referred to as the day of questions. And on the day of questions, there were many people that were enemies of Jesus. I want to make a point here about Jesus and enemies. Sometimes we think... Because we do good works, or we're a good person, or we're likable, that everybody is going to like us, and everybody is going to appreciate what we've done. That is not realistic. Do you know what? Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. The greatest preacher the world ever knew, and he had enemies that despised him and hated him. In the last week in the life of Jesus on Tuesday, there were three different categories of people that hated Jesus. One was the scribes, one was the Pharisees, and one was the Sadducees. Point of interest here. You know, the Sadducees were a division or sect of the Jews that didn't believe in the resurrection. And the Pharisees were a division or a sect of the Jews that did believe in the resurrection. There were other differences too, but that was the main difference. And did you know that the Pharisees and the Sadducees couldn't stand each other? But on this day, they come together bound by the unity of hatred against Jesus, and they question him to challenge his authority. The master answers all their questions. He beautifully answers all of their questions, and then Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says this, tell me, what do you think about the Christ? What a question. He said, whose son is he? Well, you remember that the Pharisees had rejected that Jesus was the son of God, but they did believe in a Messiah, right? 
And they believed in the prophetic accounts about the Messiah too. And what does the Bible say, or how does the Bible describe the Messiah in the Old Testament? What is he called? He's actually called the son of David. So Jesus asks the question. He said, how is the Messiah both David's son and David's Lord? He wasn't really asking them a question. He was making a point. They had rejected him. He was making a point. Here was his point. The Messiah was fully human, David's son, and he's fully divine, David's Lord. Similar language, by the way, is found 80 times in the Gospels alone. The phrase that Jesus is the Son of Man. You know this already. And when it says he's the Son of Man, it means our Messiah was fully human. And when it says he's the Son of God, it means our Messiah was fully divine. That's what Jesus was making the point. And you know what happened to all those enemies? They all retreat. And Jesus sits opposite the treasury. Going to get back to this in just a moment. And he witnesses an incredible event. All right. We have to back up. In order to understand the context and the comparison between the scribes and between the widow and her sacrificial giving, we have to back up. we got to go back to verse 38. So we do that now. In Mark 12 and 38, Then he said to them in his teaching, Our Lord was always teaching. It is better rendered, by the way, this. In the course of his teaching, he said this. He said, Beware of the scribes. Very important. Remember last Sunday we talked about Jesus was referring in Matthew 23. He was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember that? And what did he say to them? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites. We went into detail about that last Sunday. Now he's going to talk about the scribes specifically. And he doesn't just leave it in general. He says, beware, as he's teaching his disciples, in the course of all of his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. And now he's going to give six reasons. Six reasons to beware of the scribes. Number one reason, who desire to go around in long robes. And you might look at that and say, what is the big deal about wearing a long robe? What's the deal? He says, beware of the scribes. And number one of the six things, he says, they go around in long robes. Well, first of all, the reason they went around in long robes, do you know who wore long robes back then? Dignitaries. Kings wore long robes. What the scribes wanted to do is they wanted to look like, as Linwood Smith used to say, Dr. Big Somebody. That's what they wanted. And by the way, incidentally, I read this too. You know what they would do? They would walk around the streets of Jerusalem wearing these long robes, the garb of dignitaries, like they're about to do something special so other people can see them. Are you kind of getting the point as we lay the foundation about what the problem was? There's many more things we're going to talk about, but it all began with that. Incidentally, Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus is Lord of Lords. And Jesus never wore a long robe. Jesus wore a tunic, and so did his disciples. That was the garb of a common person. Isn't that fitting about Jesus? Do you remember what the Old Testament says prophetically about Jesus and his appearance? It says he has no form, nor comeliness, nor beauty that we should desire him. 
In other words, there was nothing about the outward appearance of Jesus that attracted people. Nothing. They wanted to have an outward appearance that attracted people to them, but Jesus didn't do that. Everything Jesus did to attract people was by this, by the things in which he taught, by the way that he lived, and by the things in which he said. By the way he was, by the things he taught, by the things he said, and by the things that he did and the miracles he performed. Those are the things that attracted people to Jesus, not his outward appearance. These guys, they wanted to put on airs and so forth. I wanted to make a point about clothing, if I might. Okay? I am standing before you now in a suit and a tie. If you see me during the rest of the week, you will not see me in a suit and in a tie. You will see me in a pair of jeans, probably, and a pair of boots, because that's what I am. I'm a preaching cowboy. That's me. I'm wearing a suit and tie today in the pulpit. Last Sunday I preached too, and I had a suit but no tie. Do you got to wear a tie in the pulpit? No. Do you have to wear a suit in the pulpit? No. That is a custom that we've passed down with tradition. But you know what? Everybody that teaches wears a nice shirt. Somebody wears a nice shirt, nice, nice slacks, nice shoes. Perfectly fine. The point is we dress up a little bit out of respect for the position of the pulpit, not to put on airs. It would be bad if I dressed up to put on airs. That's the point. Do you see the point? I love it in the Philippines, by the way. It is comfortable to preach in the Philippines. We wear shirts, open-collar shirts, and nice pants and shoes, and it's very comfortable. That's their dress-up. It would be inappropriate for us to roll in there with a suit and a tie. Okay? So clothing is, is not the point. The point is, are you wearing the clothing to put on airs? And that's exactly what they did. But there's more, and this is what else they did. As they walked up and down the streets of Jerusalem, they loved greetings in the marketplace. And at first, we look at this and we wonder, what's the big deal and what's the problem? What's wrong with a greeting? The New King James says greetings. The Old King James says salutations. I walked in the building, and I greeted some of you. I would have loved to greet all of you. I could not do that. I didn't have time. I had to get set up. That's not the greeting we're talking about. This word greeting in its origins literally means this. And this is what Jesus was saying about them. It's talking about greetings, meaning long-winded, worldly compliments, and titles such as Rabbi, Rabboni, and Abba. Or, I don't know, I've learned maybe it's Abba. I don't know. They wanted the title. Walking around in long robes, getting the pats on the back, and they loved the title. That's the greetings the Lord was talking about. By the way, you know what rabbi means? They call Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means Jewish scholar. Rabboni means master teacher. And Abba, by the way, the word means father. But in the New Testament... The word Abba or Abba is an intimate name for God. And that's why in the New Testament, what does it say? We call God Abba, Father. What's the difference? Father, the second word Father there, is the fact that God is our Heavenly Father. He is the Heavenly Father. But if you're a Christian, guess what? To you, He's more than just the Heavenly Father. He is Abba, Father. That means He's your Father. 
I have children, so people might say, Frank is a father. But to my kids, I'm dad. Big difference. And if you are a child of God and you're a Christian, you have that same relationship. That's the intimate relationship that you have. That's the Abba part. What these scribes wanted, though, they wanted to be called Rabbi, Rabboni, call me father, as they walked up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, watch out for them. They coveted pretentious displays of respect and recognition. But then there's more. They coveted also the best seats in the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue at the Jerusalem end, by the way, in the Jerusalem end of the synagogue, there was a platform kind of like this. On the platform stood the scripture reader and the prayer leader, okay? The chief seats in the synagogue, by the way, were right there. They were right there with their backs to the stage. And the point was, everybody that's in the audience would not only be looking at the people or looking at the scripture reader or the prayer leader, but they would also have to be also seeing those people sitting in the chief couches, sitting in the chief places, of honor. Now, Jesus didn't say it was wrong to have a seat like that in the synagogue. What he was saying is it's wrong to covet that seat. I want to share something with you. In the Philippines, they have chief seats, and I don't like it. It makes me very, very uncomfortable. We come in, the American preachers traveling with the Filipino preachers that we travel with, and you know what? Out of respect to us, they give us the cheap, seat, the cheap seats, and oftentimes we are facing the audience. I'd rather be in the audience facing the speaker like everybody else. They just do it out of respect. The problem isn't the seat. The problem is coveting the seat. What else did they do? They wanted the best places in, at the feast. And by the way, best places is better translated from the original as chief couches. You got the banquets going on, right? People come to eat. People come to enjoy the party. They had what they called chief couches or best places. You know, James, remember what James said about that? James condemned giving the rich guy the best spot and putting the poor guy on the floor. And can you imagine if you were a person that coveted the best seat in the synagogue, the chief couches at the feast, there is a complete lack of humility there. I always love it. I always love it when you're on a public transit of some sort of kind, maybe like in Dallas at the airport, when you get on that thing, you know, you go around the, the different gates. And I always think it's great when I see somebody that's been sitting down, especially a man sitting down, and a woman comes in, an older lady or perhaps, and he gets up and gives her the seat. That's humility. That's the way it ought to be. The problem, folks, is coveting the seat. There's a lack of humility. He said, watch out for these scribes because they do all of these things. They want the place of the esteemed attendants. What else? Now it's going to get worse. In verse 40, who devour widows' houses. Now this is very important because we're talking about the difference between an unnamed widow in just a moment, a precious widow that gave all she had, to the scribes, and many of these scribes devoured their houses. And what's that mean? They took their money. They took advantage of them. They exploited their generosity. 
And this was done especially by the scribes, taking advantage of them. I'm going to say something about widows. Widows are not to be exploited. Widows are not to be taken advantage of. Widows are not to be taken advantage of because of their generosity. We have a number of widows in this congregation. And you know, if you look up the definition of a widow, it says a woman that has lost her husband. Widows in the Bible, it is scriptural for a Christian widow to be even helped financially. But here's the criteria. The King James Version says if they are a widow indeed. Other translation says if they are truly a widow. Now you might say, wait a minute, widow indeed, they're either a widow or they're not, right? No. A widow indeed is somebody that has no one else. If a widow in a congregation, by the way, is in need but has family, the family helps the widow first. That's scriptural. If the widow does not have family to help or the family has no means to help the widow, she becomes a widow indeed. Therefore, it is scriptural for the treasury, the money given in the contribution, to help and assist the widow. She's now a needy saint in that. Widows are never to be exploited. They exploited these widows, devouring their houses. But notice what they did. As a pretense, made long prayers. I can't even imagine this. One scholar said, they took the sacred act of prayer and they used it to serve the devil. I can't even imagine such a thing. Long prayers. You know, Jesus talked about long prayers. He said, sometimes people think they're going to be heard for their much speaking. Can I just make a little side point about a long prayer? I appreciated our brother this morning. His prayer was just right. And I'm not the judge of that. But let me just say this. I have been a play, I was at a place one time when the brother prayed so long, people fell asleep. What's the good in that? What's the purpose in that? Are you praying just to be heard for your much speaking? When you lead a public prayer, may I just give you this little bit of advice? When you lead a public prayer in the assembly, you have two responsibilities. Number one, you have the responsibility of holding the attention of everybody there, just like the speaker. You must hold their attention, and you must pray for things that are pertinent to everybody, and it doesn't have to be long. Some of the most beautiful prayers I have ever heard were by a humble brother who prayed a short prayer to God in Jesus' name from his heart, and we all heartily said, Amen. Did you know that God heard that short prayer just like he heard the longer one? You don't have to pray long prayers to be heard by God. These guys intentionally, as a pretense, made long prayers to get advantage of those poor widows so that they could take their money. The Amplified Version, by the way, puts these two things together. Who devour widows' houses and to cover it up, they made long prayers. All right. Jesus says this, these will receive greater condemnation. That phrase, greater condemnation, I believe, is the assessment the Lord places on somebody that would do such a thing. I don't think it means that the sentence in hell is different. I think if somebody's lost, they're just lost. I don't think the punishment is different. I think the phrase greater condemnation is just the emphasis the Lord is placing on what happens to a person or what he thinks if a person does those things the scribes 
were guilty of. Now we come to verse 41. The verse 41. And we get a clear picture now between a distinction between hypocrisy and greed of the scribes and this poor widow. Notice what Jesus does. He sat opposite the treasury. Now notice this picture here. As you can see up here is the beautiful gate. And I put that up there because this is the beautiful gate. So a little background of what's happening on this day. Jesus was out here, number 12, in the court of the Gentiles when all this is happening. It's time now for Jesus to depart. And he does so. And he passes through the beautiful gate. And he goes into here, in this area right here, to the court of women. And he sits opposite the temple treasury, which was right there. He sits down on a bench and he's observing. Now, he's observing. The word treasury is a compound word, and I don't profess to know how to pronounce it. It's a great big giant word. And by the way, a compound word just means a word that comes from two different words. The first word, I'm told, is a Persian word. And that word actually means treasure. The second part of that word means guard or safeguard. So in other words, money or treasures were placed in, in, in this area here to be safeguarded and protected. We have that too. You know what that's called? A bank. We have the collection, the contribution. We take the money. We put it where? We call it the treasury. It's a place to be safeguarded and kept. It's a place where you have valuable things like money, and it's kept in the treasury. That was where this was right here in the Jerusalem temple. And Jesus is sitting in the court of the women, and he's watching. Now, according to the Mishnah, there were 13 trumpet-shaped containers, and people would come to any one of those 13 shaped trumpet-shaped containers and put in money. I've also read that every one of them was marked by one letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it all meant something different. For example, let's just say old number one over here. That was the one that you put the money in to take care of things for sacrifices like oil and incense, for example, or wood. Let's say number two. That was for another purpose. It was for daily sacrifices or for the general work of the temple. Interesting, trumpet-shaped. Jesus is now sitting back and he's watching He's watching what's going on. He's seeing how people gave and put money in the treasury. I think that is so important. I read that rich people would do this, by the way, because how you put it in, please get this, because how you give matters. Yes, the Lord is watching you give even today. The rich people would bring a trumpeteer with them, and the trumpeteer would accompany them, and about the time they're going to put the money in, he'd start blasting the trumpet to draw attention to the one that's about to give, usually large amounts. No wonder our master, our Lord said, don't blow your horn when you do your giving. No doubt he was reflecting on a custom that the rich people did. So he's sitting in the court of the women opposite the treasury, and he's watching how people put money in. Now, Hendrickson said this, I thought it was rather interesting. He said, on this occasion, the Lord's watching people and how they give. And in a sense, isn't he doing the exact same thing with us even 
now. He wants to know how we give. He wants to know. What does the Bible say about our giving? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. What about Hebrews 4 and 13? And there is no creature hidden in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. Just a little side note here. You know when it says that Jesus watched people putting in money? You know that word money? It's actually became a word that was a general word for money and all money. But in its origins, it probably meant brass or copper. And scholars say that's probably exactly what they were putting in. They were putting in pieces of brass and copper. Because one scholar also added, he said, it was probably highly unlikely they were giving silver. So it was probably brass and copper being put in. And Jesus is watching them put in all of that. Now, as we said, Jesus sat opposite the treasury. He saw how people were putting in, and many of those that were rich put in much. You know, the Passover was at hand. There were thousands of pilgrims who were about to come into the temple to worship. Many gave liberal contributions. Now watch this. In the midst of all this, then one poor widow came. In the midst of it all. Obviously, her house had been devoured, if not by the scribes, but by the circumstances of life. And she's poor. And she comes in and Jesus watches what she gives. What a contrast between the scribes and her. What'd she do? She threw in two mites. What in the world is a mite? What's a mite? A mite comes from the word lepta. It's the smallest of all Greek coins. Now stay with me on this. It'll be kind of confusing with the words, but when we get to the end, you'll know exactly how much she gave in comparison to our monetary measures, okay? We're going to know exactly how much she gave. She gave two mites. One mite is the smallest Greek coin. Two mites, according to Mark, is a quadrens. What is a quadrant? A quadrant is one quarter of a Roman Assyrius. What is that? An Assyrius is one-sixteenth of a denarius. Stay with me. It's going to get good in a minute. A denarius is an average daily wage. You worked all day, what'd you get? A denarius. When Jesus gave the parable of the vineyard, he said you worked all day, what'd they get? A penny. The word penny was denarius, a day's wages. You remember last Sunday when we said the good Samaritan took that man, he took him into the inn, he reaches into his pouch the next day, he gives him out of his pouch two denarii. That would have been two days wages. How much is that? A denarius or average daily wage in our monetary measures would have been 16 to 18 cents. All right. An Asarius is about a penny. Okay? 
So how much is a quadrans? How much is two mites? One-fourth of a penny. This poor widow, in comparison to all that the rich were giving, she gave one-fourth of a penny. Not very much, is it? You know what Jesus said about that, though? By the way, what did it look like? I don't know. This is what I Googled. This is what it said it could have looked like. Maybe like that. She threw in two of those guys. She threw in a quadrants. This would have been the estimate of a fourth of a penny. But now it's teaching time for Jesus. They were not with Jesus, his disciples. He calls his disciples to him. They weren't with him at that time. It's a valuable lesson that they need to learn. And please get this today. It's a valuable lesson that you and I need to learn too. He calls them to him and he says to them, I say to you, assuredly I say to you, meaning what I have to say, I solemnly declare to you is extremely important. Take it to heart. He said she put in more, quarter of a penny. But what she did, she put in more than all the others combined who gave to the treasury. That's what that means, by the way. When it says they gave all, more than all that was given to the treasury, it means this. She gave in her gift more in the eyes of God than all the others combined. Why? And why was that? Here's why. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, she gave all that she had, her whole livelihood. I'm going to get personal, guys. Do you know what God's looking at when you give? Right here. The spirit of the giver and the sacrifice involved. You mean to tell me, preacher, we got to sacrifice when we give? Yes. If a gift given has no sacrifice at all, what's the meaning of it? And may I say this to all of us, we sacrifice whatever we want. If we want something, you know what we do? We make it happen. And I'm guilty as charged. I'm top of the list. If I want to do something or I want something, I'll make it happen. I'll make the sacrifice. I'll juggle whatever. But when it comes to giving to God, you know what he's looking at? The spirit of the giver, that's your heart. He wants to know that. And number two, the sacrifice involved. Is it a sacrifice to you? She gave out of her poverty. They gave out of their abundance. J.W. McGarvey said this, We are disposed to measure the value of actions quantitatively rather than qualitatively. Moreover, we are better judges of actions than motives and can see the outward conduct much clearer than inward character. But... God's word constantly teaches that he looks inward. In the case of the value of the woman's gift, it was measured by quality and not by quantity. In quantity, it was two mites, a quarter of a penny. In quality, it was the gift of all she had. Do you remember when Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to get into heaven? Remember that? 
It's easy for a, for a rich man, it's easy for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Remember that? This is what, by the way, McMillan said about that. It's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven, not impossible, but it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven simply because of the virtual impossibility of his making any real sacrifice and thereby coming to know the devotion of that kind of discipleship. Large gifts out of abundance simply cannot be compared with the total gift of one's poverty. One more quote. How about Cranfield? What did Cranfield say? The gifts of the rich, though large, were easy gifts. The widow's gift, though tiny, meant a real surrender of herself to God and trust in him, and therefore an honoring of God as God, as the one to whom we belong completely, and who is able to care for us. Folks, we either trust God or we don't. We either trust God to provide or we don't. In closing, don't grab your songbooks. In closing, just a word or two about the contribution, please. Do you remember last Sunday I made mention that in the Old Testament, God said, when you produce what the land produces, what all the land produces, you are going to give a tithe or a tenth of the land. That was a requirement. We are no longer under the tenth or tithe requirement under the old law. We are under the new law, the new law of Jesus Christ. And in the new law of Jesus Christ, here are the requirements. As we have been prospered and as we purpose in our heart. Let me tell you where we go wrong. This is where we mess up. We think as we purpose in our heart, all that means is just do what you want. And that's good. And the Lord's happy with just, ah, whatever you feel like. Just, we think that's what that means. That's not what that means. Remember, the spirit of the giver and the sacrifice that's being made. So, let me ask you this. What is more strict and what is more stringent? What is more difficult? Under the old law of Moses, when what was judged was a percentage. Or the new law of Jesus Christ, when what is judged now is the heart. You tell me. It's the heart. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the contribution is a command. I love what my son-in-law says. I love what my son-in-law says when he talks about, when he waits on the table and we get to the contribution. He always says this to visitors that are in the audience, and I'm glad he does. It's not a cover charge. Don't feel like if you're a visitor that you have to give. Don't feel like that. Don't feel obligated. Do whatever you want to do. That's fine. But don't feel obligated like many affiliations do where they just keep passing around the basket, just give, 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 and make it all about money. I appreciate that he says that. But to members of the church, folks, please listen. It's a command. It is one of the five acts of worship, the five items of worship. It is a responsibility. It is an obligation. But have you ever stopped to consider that it is a wonderful blessing and privilege? Wow. When you give, no matter how much it is, don't you realize you're now part of the work? You're part of something that's bigger than you just for giving at the contribution. Amazing. Something else too, by the way. 
when you give of your means on the first day of the week and a preacher goes out and preaches the gospel and souls are saved, do you realize what happens? Those souls have now become fruit that is credited to your account. You've never met them, but they're going to heaven, and it's fruit credited to your account. All for what? Being part of the contribution and giving of your means. I didn't just grab that out of the clear blue. Paul said that, Philippians 4, 17. He says, not that I seek a gift. He wasn't saying, I want a gift from you. By the way, it is scriptural to support a preacher when he preaches the gospel. The Bible says that a man that preaches the gospel ought to live by the gospel. Paul was saying that I am not seeking a gift. What I really want is, as you support me in preaching the gospel, I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. It's a wonderful blessing, folks. It's not just a responsibility. It's a wonderful blessing when you give. Give sacrificially. Give with the right heart and the right spirit. Think about that, folks. And it doesn't hurt to sacrifice just a little bit. All of us. Guess what? Me too. I'm going to go home and do the same thing. I'm going to think about that real hard. Let's give with the right spirit, but let's also give sacrificially. That's what the widow did, and she was praised by Jesus. And she trusted that God could provide, even though she gave everything she had, that God could still provide. Let's have that kind of faith too. I'm finished. I'm finished today. Folks, it's now time for the invitation. We always extend an invitation to somebody that might be subject to the gospel call. And I'm going to ask you one question. It's the most important question that can ever be asked, and that's this. Are you saved? If the question is no, then nothing in the world matters. And I know the world has all kinds of ideas on what it means to be saved, but I just want to know what the Bible says. If you want to be saved, guess what? You can. It's very simple. You've got to obey the gospel. That's what you've got to do. How do you obey the gospel? Let's look to the Bible. And by the way, if you've noticed, since August 15th, when I extended invitation, I no longer just ramble through it. I'm putting the scriptures on the screen because it's that important. I'm not telling you what to do, teachers, but I'm telling you what I'm going to do. It's that important. To obey the gospel, you've got to hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Upon hearing the word of God, you have a choice. You've got to believe with all your heart, Hebrews 11 and 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me ask you something. Do you believe with all your heart? Surely you do. If you're willing to do that, then maybe you're willing to do this. How about change your life? Sure, let's do that. Let's change our life. You've got to repent of your sins, Acts 17 and 30. Truly, these, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And then you get to say the greatest words you will ever say. We had two baptisms last Sunday and two New sisters in Christ said these words, the greatest words you will ever say. You've got to confess Jesus as the Son of God, Acts 8.37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Upon taking these steps of obedience, you're now able to go to the point of salvation and complete obedience to the gospel, and here it is. To be saved, you must do this. 
You must be baptized for the remission of your sins. Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. If you've not taken those steps of obedience, we'd love to assist you in that today. Maybe you have. Maybe you've drifted. Maybe there are things in your life you need to correct. We can help you do that. Repent of those things. Confess those things. We'll pray with you and for you, and God will forgive. Be one of either class. Come forward while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.